right, open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 1. Pastor Ben and I did not confer on that song, that hymn we just sang, but uh, it's going to tie in very closely with the theme of the book that we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks. Habakkuk chapter 1. If you need to find it in my Bible, it's page 849, all right? I don't know what it is in yours, but good. We're going to beginning, uh, excuse me, begin by reading in verse 1, down just a couple verses here, and then we'll pray and ask for God's grace on our time this evening. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's kindness on our time this evening. Father, we ask for your grace for us to be learners, to be hearers, to see you for who you truly are here in our passage this evening. To, like Habakkuk, have an appropriate response that is not based on feeling or circumstance, but that is grounded in our faithful, sovereign God. Let me pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This evening we find ourselves in the Minor Prophets, and over the next couple weeks we'll be taking a closer look here at this little book of Habakkuk. Our study in this book won't be long, okay, we've only got three chapters here, but I do believe it'll have, uh, when we walk away, we'll have great reason for benefit for the time that we've spent here in this short book. Now, it's important for us to turn to this small book, and I, I would encourage you to actually read it at home so that you can immerse yourself and familiarize yourself even more with the themes and the content of this book. Now, if you like me, the temptation for us, especially going into the Old Testament, is to immediately assume that we are so far removed from the circumstances that are described here in these chapters that they really may have nothing to say to us at all. Right? But in fact, as we will discover, even though we are far off in regards of time and location, we are far closer concerning the spiritual and moral condition of the people of God that is described here in these three chapters. And like with any other passage in Scripture, it's, it's going to be very important that we don't rush into application, that we don't automatically just seek to apply certain verses, but that we understand the context of what we're talking about. We understand who we're studying. We need to go where Habakkuk is in his own setting so that we can make sensible application to where we are and who we are as well. Now, in order to do that, we're going to look at three things in this passage, excuse me, this passage tonight. First, we're going to look at, uh, take a closer look at the prophet himself, Habakkuk. Then we're going to examine the problem that he describes and finally the response that God gives to Habakkuk. First of all, let's take a look at the prophet. 
I'd like to examine Habakkuk's biographical content. What is the biographical content for Habakkuk? Well, actually, it's pretty much non-existent. It is, it's, just, it's just not there, right? Most, most books have a verse or two or a little section where it begins to describe this man and the titles that he has and the accolades and where he's coming from and who he's writing to, but you just don't see it here. You can't find Habakkuk anywhere else in Scripture, and all we know of him is derived from our study of these three chapters. Now, this does not simply tell us something about the man Habakkuk, but actually it tells us something about the role of a prophet. The role of one who is raised up by God to speak to the times and to the people that required a word from Yahweh Himself. To bring the burden of God's plans and decrees to those who are His listeners. And much like biblical preaching, it can be said that the true significance of a prophet is found in what he says. In other words, his biography or his personal introduction non-existent as we know it, is less important to the burden that he is about to deliver. Now perhaps you say, I don't understand burden. What are you talking about this word burden? Well, depending on your translation that you're holding in your lap, you may have the word oracle as a second word, or you may, it may say burden as a second word in the verse that you see there. Well, is it an oracle? What is it? Yes, it's an oracle, but it also it was a burden. What was this burden? The burden of seeing things with the perspective that God had given Habakkuk. The burden of looking at the circumstances around him that others had seen but not yet understood what they were seeing. It's very similar to what we would see in the case of Nehemiah. right? Although he was not a prophet, he was called to do something of a prophetic role for the children of Israel. When he arrives in Jerusalem and he sees the broken down walls, In the disunity among the people, he says, you see the trouble we are in? He looks at them and he says, we are in deep trouble here. He says, do you see it? And indeed they saw it, but the reality is they didn't see it. What did they need? Right? They needed Nehemiah. What they needed was Nehemiah, one who had been given the burden of leadership, the burden of responsibility to bring God's ways back To Jerusalem. And so for Habakkuk here, as as one author puts it, his credentials, his biography, all that we know about him was actually in his calling. His significance is all in his sermon, his message. We notice that no time is taken up with personal information, personal descriptions. Why? Because the message is greater than the man. The message is always greater than the man. A perfect example of this is John the Baptist in John chapter 1, where the priests and the Levites come before John the Baptist and they show their, their, um, their lack of understanding of who this man is and they begin to question him and ask about his background. And on just a short, easy summary of their interaction together, they say, John, who are you? Tell us who you are. Give us some kind of background to help us understand who you might be. And all John says, he's, he, if you remember his answer, he says, I am not him. And they, they, they say, okay, well, are you him? And he says, no, 
I'm not him. And he says, no, no, I'm not. And they say, wait, 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 wait. are you really him referring to Jesus? Are, are you the one that you're actually prophesying about? And he says, no, I am not. And you can actually hear their persistent questioning as they try to determine who this man really is. What are his credentials? Tell us something about you to tell us how significant you truly are. But eventually John's response is this. He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way, excuse me, make straight the way of the Lord. My friends, this is part of the significance here of the absence of the personal introduction for Habakkuk. The prophet here, the same could be said for all of the prophets, actually. Even the things we know about them are not profound or compelling. The message they carry is the substance of their calling. In other words, the message always supersedes the messenger. The messenger is always subservient to the message. Now, there's an important lesson here, and it's this. For those who bear the call and the responsibility to preach and teach the word, those who find themselves in a preaching role, or even those who have a desire to enter into this responsibility, responsibility and privilege, may we never see ourselves as greater than the message that we are called to proclaim. May our identity and the description that is attached to our name be that of words and the ways of our God. That the message of the gospel would be our banner that no man would elevate himself above his calling. So, as for the biographical content, the introduction, the who is who here, the understanding of who is this man, Habakkuk, well, frankly, it's totally lacking. There's nothing there. Second, though, the historical context. A lot could be said here for the timing of this book. Um, but for the sake of our time and the rest of the content of the book, and, and uh, I would just simply turn your attention perhaps to another book in Scripture that would give us helpful insight regarding the timing of the writing of this and Habakkuk's ministry. So to help us understand the timing and historical context of Habakkuk, simply think and keep in mind the picture of Daniel. Okay? Daniel and all that happened to Daniel when he was taken away from Babylon, excuse me, taken away to Babylon as a teenager. Because the fulfillment of what we're going to see here in the study of Habakkuk was accomplished in the time of Daniel. This is the message of what was to come, the message Habakkuk was burdened with to tell his current generation. And the things that God had burdened Habakkuk with would see great, the greater part of their fulfillment. What Habakkuk is going to reveal and tell and prophesy is going to find its fulfillment in the Babylonian invasion and the captivity of God's people during that time. And, of course, if we did a deeper dive, we could go all the way back to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 23, chapter 24, 25, that would give us a pretty clear picture of the fall, the rise and the fall of all the kings of Judah, the eventual downfall at the hands of the Babylonian people. During the years of Habakkuk's ministry, the king would have been King Jehoiakim. Now, the reign of King Jehoiakim would have come soon after the reign of his father, a righteous, mighty, faithful man named Josiah. And according to most scholars, Habakkuk would have been a contemporary of the prophets Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. Excuse me. So, 
After a closer look at the prophet, prophet Habakkuk, we see that the biographical content is absent. The historical context is this, of a dark, fearful time, specifically for the children of Israel. A time of sin and a time of coming judgment. So we've looked at the prophet, but that leads us very quickly to the problem. The problem. Although Habakkuk lived a long time ago and very far away, he introduces to us a timeless issue. And this is how his prophecy opens. Habakkuk is wrestling with the apparent inactivity of God in the face of injustice, violence, and destruction. His questions to God are straightforward. And the prophet is asked and continues to wait for an answer from God. And so in verse 2, he asks the Lord, How long, Lord, how long is this going to be? But really what is truly surfacing here is, in his mind, the inconsistency from what Habakkuk knew and what Habakkuk was seeing. There seemed to be a big discrepancy here And the reason for his outcry, for his reasoning of saying, how long, God, God," is because he, he knows one thing to be true, but he's seeing something totally different. How is he to reconcile what he knows to be true about God and his promises, and yet what he sees all around him? Because from his perspective, there is a problem with God's timing in all of this. The prophet knew good and well that the covenant had been established between God and His people. The promised blessings that would accompany their obedience to God. He also knew that the promised judgment would result from a disobedience in an unfaithful way. You can see these promises laid out for yourself actually in Deuteronomy chapter 28. A quick summary of this chapter. Essentially, God is saying this, if you'll obey me, I will bless you and prosper you. If you disobey me, then curses will come down upon you. The judgment you will face is inevitable. And so the prophet here, knowing that, right, he knows these promises, is essentially saying in verses 2 through 4 here in our first chapter, he's saying, so what are you doing? God, you said way back in Deuteronomy that if we stepped out of line, if your people were out of line, if we were involved in wickedness, you would do something. But apparently, you're not doing anything. How long is this going to go on, God? Habakkuk is witnessing a people in front of his very eyes, a people characterized by a collapsing morality, an increase in violence, pervasive destruction and chaos, endless strife and contention, a wholesale disregard for God's law. My friends, this truly is a problem, isn't it? Right? It, it, it continues to underscore the need for divine intervention, repentance, and redemption. Notice as well, though, that the problems here in verses 2 through 4 are internal problems. This was not a problem of people outside of God's covenant framework. These are people within it. What is being described here is a people, a people who are very far from what God had designed for them. 
When God establishes people, He clearly laid out a plan for them. Notice what He says in Exodus chapter 19 about them. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine and you shall be you shall to, to me be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. My question for you, though, is have the children of Israel arrived to this point? Are they there yet? No, they're far from it. For Habakkuk, there seems to be no end in sight, actually, of the complete opposite of what God had promised to His people. There seemed to be no real intervention or action from God which caused his heart to question so very deeply. To ask questions of God that perhaps some of us would be even embarrassed to admit that we might have asked before ourselves. But the problem in Habakkuk's heart is twofold. There's first of all this question of timing. Did you see it there? In verse 2, he says, How long, God? How long is this going to go on? But the second thing, he also questions God, not only in his timing, but God's tolerance. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Verse 12 uh, 12, uh, says the very same thing. where He he asks God, he says, Why are you idly sitting by and waiting? Why are you tolerating wrong and making me watch it on a daily basis? Now perhaps this is a thought that echoes often in your own heart. Is this something that perhaps even this week you've watched the news, you've interacted with neighbors, maybe your children, and you've gone, why? How long? How long can you, God, the one true holy God, tolerate evil in this world? In fact, my friends, it should be the question of every thoughtful believer. How long will this go on? Whatever this might be in your own life or the world around you. And and why is it that our God, our all-powerful God, tolerates the decay and decline of spirituality and morality in the lives of those who profess to be His followers. Why? This is the heart cry here of the prophet Habakkuk. He recognizes that the people of God have wandered far from who God had promised they would become, and he actually, by his request, by his outcry, is anticipating that God will do something about it, but he still sits there and asks the question, how long And why are you so tolerant, God? Through the ages, very similar questions have been asked of the Lord in prayer. Similar phrases, similar questions have been uttered. We see these prayers often reflected in terms of questions or perhaps a word you've heard even recently, uh, the idea of of a lament. As one other puts it, these questions and laments are part of a believer's burden. An honest dialogue with God is a necessary form of a relationship 
with him. Lament, therefore, is a resource for God's people who are seeking to navigate pain and suffering. Lament, therefore, is a resource for God's people who are seeking to navigate, understand, walk through pain and suffering. When we look at the prayers often that are offered up in Scripture, we have prayers of petition, prayers of intercession, praise, confession, meditation. We come to this prayer of lament, and it's a unique prayer because it does this. It enables God's people to plead for divine help. It enables them to plead for deliverance from distress, from suffering, from pain. And in the face of this terrible evil, lawlessness and injustice, destruction, chaos, violence, and iniquity, this is what God gives Habakkuk. God gives Habakkuk a prayer of lament. Habakkuk opens his prophecy lamenting the deplorable state of the children of Israel. My friends, lamentation and questioning, these are God's gift to the believer. They provide a pathway of honest faith and faithful conversation with God in the midst of terrible times. A sweet gift that provides an honest faith and faithful conversation with God in the most difficult of times. Notice, if you would, how we see very similar words to the words that Habakkuk utters. We see them repeated and echoed throughout all of the Psalter, actually. Psalm 7, verse 6 says, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, O God. Decree justice. Psalm 17, verse 1. Hear, O Yahweh, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 44, 23 says, Awake, O Yahweh, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And then finally, chapter 88, verses 1 through 3 and 14, it says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast your soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The entire books of Job and Lamentations are all dedicated to expressing the confusion and the pain of unbearable suffering of the faithful. We even see Christ cry out with the same lament that we we heard repeated in chapter uh, in Psalm 22, "My God, my God, why do you forsake me?" But like Habakkuk, Jesus models for us The possibility of what? The possibility of being honest with God about our situations through lament, yet without guilt. Habakkuk, the psalmist, Jesus, they did not hesitate to bring their complaints to the Lord 
and ask their questions in a direct manner. And in the laments, they were resolute in their faithfulness, even when the Lord's response was not what they wanted to hear. We'll actually we'll, we'll look into that a little bit more in chapter 3 when we get to it. Now, of course, when we talk about psalms or prayers of lament here, the danger is to protest, to complain, to go before the Lord and lament in an unfaithful manner. Unfortunately, Christians have a hard time with lament prayer. Practically, lament can be characterized as an irritating complaint. Right? Or worse, it can be the whining of a young child to where you go and you just say, I don't like my circumstance, fix it. Remove it from me. The whining, the protesting with reckless doubt that's pervasive in a heart that does not want to trust but just wants to question forgetting what God has done and promises to do. My friends, biblical lament is firmly rooted in a strong sense of God's divine justice. You you go to God knowing that God is always and ever the one with whom the sufferer will appeal to. And the one with whom the sufferer believes is truly listening as well. The one who is powerful enough and just to give the appropriate response to your lament. When we compare lament to praise in Scripture, right, the, the praise of God and the lament prayers that are taken to Him, it's very apparent that lament is situated a bit differently in the life of faith that we live. You see, praise looks back at what God justly has done in the past in salvation, but lament looks forward to what God will do in the present and future in salvation. Lament is peeking around the corner, right? It's that anticipation of the mercies and the justice of God, that the just God does respond to lament. My friends, the lamenter's prayer And they pray, excuse me, lamenters pray to their only hope, God Himself. Lamenters go to the one who is the only source of the true answer to their lament. In the hope that He will respond, that expectation that He will respond to the prayers, not based on how much we mean it or how often we go, but the the one who hears will respond based on what? His character. That He'll respond based on the covenant love, His mercy, and yes, His justice. That as we go to Him and lament, as we go with our God, how long? Why do you so idly wait? We go in faith with a firmly rooted heart, with, the, with a sense that God, this is You, I trust. I believe Because I know that you will answer in your own time, in your own plan, how according to who you are. Not my circumstances. Not my feelings. We see here in Habakkuk a man who speaks with God with an unrestrained lament. It's actually pretty strong. Words that we hear expressed and wonder if it's even okay to say. But Habakkuk's protest here is faithful. It's inspired because it is done out of a conviction that God is good all the time, even in pain and death. 
Humans possess here neither the mind of God nor the, the perspective of God. And as a result, we must go to God in our human state, with our limited perspective, we must go to God when we are confused or when we see injustice and even when we experience heartache. Lament prayer. Lament prayer is not God-denying language. It's God-affirming language. It reveals a radical faith in God. A firm understanding of our dependence on Him for all things. When we turn to the Lord and present our complaint to Him in faith, He will hear us and He will respond according to His will and purpose. I don't know about you, but as as I began to unfold this and even study some of the other Psalms of Lament, I began to have a heart that was encouraged even as I struggle with my own areas and own doubts and own questions, to realize that in faith as I go, dependent solely on God and His character, He will answer, He will hear and respond according to His will and His purpose. So we've seen here the prophet, we've seen the problem that he presents. How long? Why do you wait? How can you tolerate this God? And then Yahweh answers. Finally, right? He's finally giving me an answer. I've waited so long, I'm going to get the answer that I want. But the Lord's answer here to Habakkuk's complaint is unique. But I want want you to notice here first, though, his response to Habakkuk is actually an indication that he cares about the concerns of this prophet. Right? Habakkuk gets his response from the Lord here in the beginning of verse 5 where the Lord answers him with three imperatives. He says, look, observe, or see, and be astounded. God's response to the concerns and complaints will be met with utter astonishment from the prophet and everyone else as they watch. But if Habakkuk thinks he's getting relief from his distress... He is the one who's truly going to be astonished. Because what God is about to do is unthinkable. It's not at all what Habakkuk was prescribing as the answer for his complaints. For his going to God and saying, God, how long? My friends, this this does speak of the impossibility of assuming we always know how God will deal with the events that happen in our world. The impossibility of knowing how God will unfold His sovereign plan. Just when we think we have figured out everything we we need to know about God's purposes, we come to learn that His ways, they're what? They're higher than our ways. His thoughts, much higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9 reminds us so effectively of this truth. And what God reveals to Habakkuk here is that this emerging superpower, the Babylonians, simply are this, an instrument in Yahweh's hand. An instrument of judgment for His people. And that's the significance here of verse 6. He says, I, God says, I am raising up the Babylonians. Verses 6-11, through God describes this fearsome, godless nation 
that is a supreme power in the world, but only by God's hand alone. A perverted, self-focused nation that would sweep through the land and destroy everything in its view, lay hold of the wayward children of Israel, but how? Only as God designed it to be that way. It baffles the human mind that God would choose a wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation. No doubt, this is running through the mind of Habakkuk. God, you, I, I ask you to do something about these really sinful people that you promised blessing to if they would obey. I want you to fix them, but it, hold on a minute here. You're going to bring an even more wicked nation to come and take care of this wicked nation? It doesn't make sense, God. So while the Babylonian Empire was powerful and ruthless, my friends, they were only a tool in the hands of God. God chose to use them as a tool of discipline for His covenant-breaking people. The Babylonians could not even begin to understand that the Lord is far more powerful than any human empire could ever imagine. Because man's power is temporary, but God's power is eternal. Man's power is limited, but God knows no limits. And here Habakkuk sits, and this is God's response to him. In other words, what God is saying is this. God reveals that the momentous historic events that are unfolding in Habakkuk's lifetime, Babylonians sweeping in, taking over God's people, all of these events are under God's Sovereign control. Nothing has accidentally skipped a beat in God's plan. There's not been a moment of oops along the way. My friends, we need to be reminded, as Habakkuk here is reminded, that God is at work. Even though we can't see it at times, He's, he, what he's doing here is he's letting the prophet know that although he's asking the question, why aren't you doing something? God is actually doing something. It may not be the something that Habakkuk was asking for and pleading for and expecting, but God is doing something. He's always at work. In fact, God was already at work in a far-off place, in a, in, a, in a wicked people, the Babylonian people, working momentous events that were going to change the course of Israel's history. The ways of the Lord are surely higher than the ways of mankind. God has a plan for His wayward children that will certainly eradicate the land of all of its unfaithfulness. Now it's just up to Habakkuk to believe. So what does this mean for us? Right? How do we, how do we read chapter 1 of this small little book here in the Old Testament where we see interaction with a prophet who asks hard questions of God and says, why? How long? What are you going to do about it, God? I believe you will do something, but that's not what I was expecting. 
What does that mean for us? Well, I'd like to leave you with just a couple concluding thoughts here. The first one is this. It would be helpful for us to follow the example of the prophet here and learning to call on the Lord for help. Notice what he does. He takes his complaint where? To the only place we ought to take it. He takes it to the Lord. Cry out, my friends, as Habakkuk did. God, how long must I call out to you for help? One pastor summarized the theme here of Habakkuk's prayers in this way. He says, prayer gives the prophet and us the frame by which to affirm the goodness of God and justice of God, cry out for His justice to be made manifest in the real world, and to look for His justice to be exercised in the future. Prayer provides, in, <clears throat> prayer provides the vocabulary we need to voice our pain. Prayer provides the framework to affirm God's righteousness while simultaneously pleading for that justice to be actualized during our suffering. But prayer also gives the frame by which to look forward to the deeper future hope, a hope when God's justice will be revealed at the end and all shall be well. We can learn how to call out to God in prayer, to lament in faith, believing that God will accomplish His will and His perfect plan. My final thought for you tonight is this. We've seen here in the timeline of Habakkuk's era that God was truly under control. And that is true of every timeline and every age. What we need to learn is to see the events in our world, whether in Habakkuk's day or in our own day, that they are all tied in with their significance being what? Only as significant as they are tied to the eternal plan of God. And if we keep our focus here, focused where? On the gospel, focused on the good news, focused on the truth that God's perspective on the unfolding story of our world is far more comprehensive than we could ever imagine, and yet remain focused on the person of His Son, the triumph of His resurrection, and the glory that is to come, then, my friends, then all of our cares, all of our cancers, all of our disappointments and pains, all of our failures and heartaches can be brought under the security of God's sovereign purpose. And so this is where we leave Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 1 summarizes it where it says, I'll, I'll stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, he will, what I will answer concerning my complaint. My friends, when we are tempted to doubt, to wonder if God still cares, or if He's at work at all in our pain, at work at all in our heartache, remember these truths from Habakkuk's lament. Remember these truths from a difficult prayer, a difficult series of questions, and remember the response of God. 
Remember that God truly is at work, that He's not forgotten, that His ways are higher than our ways, His plans better, greater than our plans. Perhaps we also will be able to echo the same words written by the hymn writer uh, K.L. Suffield just about 100 years ago where he says this, God is still on the throne and He will remember His own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, He will never leave us alone. God is still on the throne, and He will remember His own. And His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Father, If we're honest, we have many questions. We have many concerns. There are things that plague our minds day in and day out. Things that make no sense to us as we observe and see and the disconnect oftentimes between what we know to be true about you and what we see in our world today. The plan that you've spelled out for our world and your people and yet the wickedness and the sin all around us. God, I I pray that by your grace you would give us settled, peace-filled hearts that are trusting, that are at rest, that are confident in your plan, your sovereign will your purposes that can't be thwarted, your ways that are higher than ours, greater than ours. Father, like many of the questions that were asked of you throughout the Scripture, I pray that you would answer faithfully as you have done for so many before us. That you would comfort our hearts with who you are, your character, that we would find rest and a place to believe there. Do this in our hearts, in our people, in our families, for your kingdom, for your glory, and by your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ.